1: This week on the Legion Clubhouse, it's the return of Pulsar. But not the Pulsar you might be
0: expecting. Karate Kid number nine, The Black Belt Contract. Published July-August 1977. Written by David Michelinie as Barry Jameson. With art by Rick Estrada. Synopsis, Karate Kid must return to the future to save Projecta's life.
1: We're jumping into the pages of Karate Kid number nine. In this episode, Matthew,
0: Mm -hmm. there's
1: been a a couple of issues since we looked at the Karate Kid. How about you fill us in on what was going on in the between times?
2: Sure. We covered issue six in a previous issue. Issue seven of the Karate Kid featured Karate Kid's desperate battle against the Gyro Master and his terrible gyroscopes. Uh, Wait, isn't there a villain
1: villain in the DC universe called The Top? Like a Flash villain called The Top? So how is the Gyroscope Man different from The Top?
2: Well, that's an interesting point. The Gyroscope Master, in fact, is the top, or rather, what? was written as the top. But David Michelini, who's writing this under the alias of Barry Jameson, didn't realize the top was dead. So they just reskinned him as the Gyro Master.
1: <laughs> so I'm curious when do we. I mean, Mark Wade is very, very knowledgeable about the history of all of the characters in the DC Universe. And I would have thought at one time back in the. Uh, 90s, early 90s, when he was working for D.C., doing The Flash and all of that stuff, and even building up to uh, 52, that they kind of considered him the de facto historian? Mm -hmm. When did... Was there someone before him? I mean, obviously, right now, someone has to be told, oh, man, uh, the top's uh, dead. You should have uh, checked. At what point do we have that checks and balance system? I know editorial is supposed to do that, and group editors are supposed to do that, but why... Why did this happen?
2: Well, at, in this era, your DC uh, guru would have been Bob Rosakis, uh, the Answer Man, as he's known. You'll see occasionally mm-hmm. in issues of The Legion, you'll see Bob's thing. Bob Rozakis and Nelson Bridwell, who uh, we've you know got some experience with as well, were known heavily. But I think what happened with the top was he died in the pages of Flash in and around this era. I don't remember exactly when. But I think it may be one of those things where the story was written while the top was alive. And Ah. by the time Jameson's script was ready, Carrie Bates had killed the top in the pages of the class.
1: And again, for those people that kind of hate editorial, and we see a lot of hate against editorial over the years, but this is what editorial is supposed to do. This is one of the things that editorial groups sit around and they keep track of what's going on in the Superman group, in the Batman group, in the Flash group, or whatever that may be going on, whatever their big uh, editorial staff are. And every once in a while, publishers, whether it be Marvel or or DC or one of the other big publishers uh, that have a lot of comics that are interconnected, they will sit down and have a group planning session where they will say, OK, what are we going to do from now until the next year or the next six months or whatever's our big event? And let's make sure we got all our ducks in the row so that we don't have the Flash killing the top while someone of our writers is actually writing a top story. Uh, And so for those of you that poo poo editorial, that's one of the reasons why they exist is to make sure that there's not conflicting messages or conflicting moments that go into major stories and to make sure that everyone's continuity is in order.
2: Sure, but I mean, you know, this last weekend, I reviewed Superman Red, Superman Blue, number one, which was created by all the Superman creative teams, and it was just a mishmash of nonsense. So, I mean, there's an upside to continuity, and then there's the question of, maybe, you know, David Michelinie wants to write this cool story. Oh, wait, we can't use this guy, so I'll kind of create a different guy. I'm really sort of fine with that Wild West style occasionally, because... Honestly, that's where the Legion comes from. That's where a lot of the things that we see in comics that have stuck, like Deadpool, like the X-Men, all of that has just come out of a somebody went, meh. You know, Wolverine's mask was not the mask that we currently know, the Batman style cowl with the big pointy ears. Oh, yeah, it was Timberwolf's mask. Yes, Until until Gil Kane drew it wrong on the first issue of Giant Size X-Men. And since Kane did it and they're like, oh, that looks better. They're like, OK, we're just going to change it on the interiors. And I'm like, see, that works. That's a better mask. It doesn't have cu- cute little whiskers. Oh, sure. so, you you know. can
1: always iterate. You can always change. I'm just saying that in this particular instance and, and what I'm mm-hmm. explaining is this is why we have editorial groups and why there are big editorial meetings where people, uh, you know, mastermind the next year at a publisher and why it's yes. more pre- prevalent now than it was 40 years ago or 50 years ago.
2: Yeah, they didn't do that in 77. Yeah.
1: So we do get introduced to a character called Pulsar. Did we get through all the stuff that was going on uh, in this?
2: Pulsar actually first appears in issue eight, which we're not covering because, again, I don't consider every solo Karate Kid story to be a Legion story. And uh, also, they're not good. Uh, But that issue first had the battle with Karate Kid and Pulsar. And ended with him coming home to find Princess Projectra in his bedroom. Dun, dun, dun. That's where we pick up now with Karate Kid number nine.
1: Yeah, so we are introduced to Pulsar, who quite frankly, especially in the first um, first page pl- splash, mm-hmm. looks a lot like a He-Man character. He I mean, just in the way that he's proportioned, the crazy costume, the, you know, just the whole vibe that he gives off. Just feels like he's ready to be dipped in some glue and flocked and set on the shelf as merman or swamp man or whatever that they want to call him because this is this is action figure central right here
2: and you know part of that is the combination of statin and Estrada. together they make for some really cartoony art i don't necessarily hate it but i agree with you i also find it interesting that he's meeting with a man who looks like the question blue suit Orange tie, orange shirt. I mean, literally, this is the Charlton Comics question. As he steps forward out of the shadows, you can't even see his face. I'm like, are they doing this on purpose?
1: I, I Why is He-Man so. I mean, fighting
2: the question on the he, docks?
1: He is he is, he is a mob man. Mob man uh, with a button that can control Pulsar and make him do whatever he wants. Meanwhile, Karate Kid gets caught making out with another girl when uh, <laughs> his uh, supposed real girlfriend walks in the room
2: his fiance. I I believe he's hugging. He's not making out.
1: I don't know. Looks like a pretty close embrace, if you ask me. I know if I walked in and caught my significant other in an embrace like that, I'd be pretty irate as well. Maybe even start a catfight, which is what's starting to go on here.
2: Almost, yes. But he's trying to explain it. Iris Jacobs uh, actually does have a thing for Karate Kid. And doesn't have any business messing with uh, Princess Projector, who really you know, would slap her down. But yeah, uh, it's, it's I'm upset by this plot point.
1: Why? I mean, It's it, very is, retrograde, this is a, even for
2: 1977, this Jealous is a Projector plot point shows that
1: was, up. This was a plot point that was set up in issue one. I mean, the minute that uh, she meets Karate Kid in the first issue, she's like, oh, he's so dreamy, I'm gonna make him mine. And so this, you know, this was set up now, unless Karate Kid had no intention of ever going back to the future, unless Karate Kid never thought that uh, his girlfriend would come to the past to see what he was doing, unless he never suspected that perhaps her father was spying on him the entire time, (laughs) then I don't know. uh, I don't know why this was not something telegraphed nine, eight issues ago.
2: It's not spying. Uh, we haven't learned the reason why, but we did find we do find out in this issue that the monitor globe in his apartment, the person on the other end is Projectus' father, King Voxv of Orando. Uh, but yes, uh, the cat fight actually gets interrupted, thankfully, because it's incredibly retrograde and inappropriate, by Pulsar trying to kill Karate Kid. So you know, fighty fighty kicks in, and then we have another moment that's kind of sexist where. He- he just leaps out and tells Projector to stay here and take care of herself. And I'm like, Val, your girlfriend is five times more powerful than you. And unlike you, she's wearing her flight ring.
1: Yeah, but he's got the power of karate. Uh-huh.
2: And I've got the power of Unaki. But that doesn't mean that I'm more powerful than my girlfriend who has superpowers and actual flight ability.
1: But he knows the 70s. She's just arrived here. Still, still a bad play. Also, this is the 1970s. He's a man, Matthew. <laughs> and she's a woman.
2: He's a complicated man. Oh, and no one understands
1: my goodness. From- there uh-huh. is so much jive talking going on in. In this uh, in this issue.
2: Yep. Pulsar is an African-American character in the 70s.
1: Which is interesting okay. because, you know, Jive Talk actually started in like 1938 with Cab Calloway, right? And then mm-hmm. it had its peak in the 1940s, but then resurrected in the 1970s. And the only reason I why I can think that maybe some of that Jive Talk got resurrected is because in that short time period, and even though, you know, Jive had still been around, um, mm-hmm. I can't help but wonder if a lot of it didn't come back because of, Television and radio, where uh, television in the early days couldn't help but um rerun old movies and maybe radio stations were running older music or alternative music maybe at the day uh, mm-hmm. that you wouldn't normally hear in in any other mainstream media, and maybe that's why it made a comeback um so yeah I don't know in nineteen fifty three there was a book published about jive talk, but still that's twenty plus years before we hit. Mm-hmm the main seventies.
2: That's an interesting point. I mean, I don't know if it's a cyclical thing or not, but I mean, if you get into the seventies, it became almost a badge of honor to have that character in, you know, a comic book or in a sitcom, the character who did have that, you know, that kind of street jive Turkey lingo. Mm-hmm. You see it, you see it with uh, Venus Flytrap in WKRP in Cincinnati. You see it in several characters in good times. And it's it's one of those things that at the time, really, almost surprisingly, it's always played as almost always played as a positive character.
1: Yeah. And I, I know really
2: we, appreciate that.
1: I know we talk about uh, jive and use that term. I don't know if that is the actual term that was still used in the 70s. But most people associate the slang of the 70s with jive and maybe because it was prevalent in the black community and started with the black community in the, in the forties or in, in the thirties and forties. So I don't know if that's why that, um, that still continues.
2: It's possible. I mean, and if you look at some of the, the parlance in this issue, you actually see pulsar going back and forth from jive Turkey, kick him in the next County. You dig to you know, your standard comic book, uh, genius villain talk. And I'm wondering If maybe he's not putting on a facade, because that's one of the things that Black Lightning did in 77 as well to try and maintain a secret identity.
1: The interesting thing is not
2: just wear a mask and fake hair, but also take on an entirely different vernacular. Right.
1: And that's the one thing that we don't find out here. And maybe I don't know if it was uh, talked about in a previous issue. We kind of learn a little bit about Pulsar's backstory in how he uh, was knocked out and they put this suit on him that has an electroshock in there that can give him a heart attack um but we don't know what his background background is you know whether he is someone like black lightning who is well educated and went to the olympics and all of those kinds of things or if he's portrayed as just a general street criminal uh so that that's the part that's a little bit different now we do know that he's the criminal with a heart of gold right because he does want to protect his sister from everything mm-hmm. and of course if he doesn't do it the uh the 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 mobster guy is going to kill his sister um Egghead man is what I'm going to call him. And that's why he goes out and agrees to try and kill Karate Kid. Let me.
2: Yeah, his name is not Egghead man, but. Well, I'm going to also it's drawn very much as an egghead. And that's another yeah. one. If you look at that page, that is super cartoony.
1: Well, a lot of what we see. So when we see Karate Kid, when we see Pritchett's projector, when we see his apartment, that's pretty much straight up kind of. Um art that we would normally associate with this time period. But mm-hmm. perhaps tying into the reason why I think that Pulsar looks like a He-Man character is any time that Pulsar is on the page, especially when he's dealing with uh, the the boss guy and his and his sister, everything takes on a more cartoony feel to it. And I don't know if it's because of uh, the artist that we have in, in this uh, Rick Estrada's art, because normally he does really great at portraying, you know, the karate moves and the other Uh, uh, action poses that we've talked about before. So I'm just Mm -hmm. very surprised that all of a sudden we get into some very cartoony territory in this issue.
2: It's the inking of Joe Statton. Joe Statton has a very cartoony style. If you look at his work on E-Man, his work on uh, New Guardians in the 80s and 90s, Joe Statton is a very cartoony artist. Mm -hmm. And I feel like certain pages look like they have more Statton than they do Estrada. Mm-hmm. So, and it may be one of those things where, you know, you do breakdowns or you do your pencils as loose as you want. And sometimes it looks like Estrada definitely did some tight pencils and they were inked pretty solid. But there are moments where, yep, this is a Joe Staten comic. So,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. So eventually Karate Kid and Pulsar both get thrown into a giant human-sized microwave because apparently every restaurant has these these yes, days so that microwaves. you can so that you can flash fry a cow and serve it to your customers
2: Microwaves, which uh, we're explained, uh, cook things from within using sound waves.
1: Oh, man, I remember when my parents got the first microwave, it would have probably been. Probably 1980 ish, 1981, 82, somewhere around there, early 80s is what I remember, around the same time we got our first VCR. Um, and I remember it was always one of those things where it's like, don't stand too close to the microwave. Those those energons are going to come out and and cook you from the inside. It's great for making coffee, but don't stand too close, kids. And, uh, yeah, so it's weird to see a comic book actually inject some, some science into this issue. Sort of science.
2: I mean, a giant room sized uh, First of all, the microwave is filled with steel hooks. Hey. And I don't know if you've ever put aluminum foil in the microwave yeah, no, like I know steel, I though. have.
1: That's not steel, though. That's aluminum.
2: Oh, that's steel.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, what's, what's the inside of your microwave coated with? Not plastic.
2: Uh, mine is actually mm. plastic. It's mm-hmm. all plastic. I have a plastic. So, yeah, microwave.
1: no, but I'm glad that they're putting in some science into this. Uh, and we do get a little bit of a backstory on the origin of Pulsar in here as well. Uh, eventually powered
2: by his heart.
1: Yeah. Eventually, he escapes. They take down Mr. Big. They save the day, and finally, Karate Kid is able to go back to his apartment, turn on his sphere of death, and we discover that the person he's been communicating with this entire time is his future father-in-law.
2: Dun, dun, dun. And now they must go back to the future.
1: Yeah, because apparently the kingdom is in trouble, and instead of asking his daughter or the Legion members who are there in the, uh, in the 31st century for help, right. uh, he wants to go and ask for the man who has got the plan, Mr. Karate Kid.
2: Yeah, I part of the I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm the guy who's saying we should not cover Karate Kid because it sucks. But part of the problem, You're the one with who said karate we should
1: Kids, c- cover Karate Kid.
2: Well, part of the problem with the Karate Kid series is that it has nothing to do with anything. And part of the problem is that it's really not very good.
1: Well, I um, think the reason why I mean, so, again, when we look at this Venn diagram of why Karate Kid should have worked in this time period. And maybe it did. I don't know what the sales were on this particular series. But remember, we had this, this, uh, the first circle is Legion of Superheroes at an all-time high right here. We also have the next circle, Karate Kid, new character. And then we have the, you know, he's got an attitude. He's really cool with his big Elvis costume on. And then we have the third circle in our Venn diagram was the rise of... Uh, karate and martial arts comics. We've got Chang Chi. We've got uh, uh, what's what? We got Iron Fist. We've got uh, who else? Uh, Richard, Richard Dragon. Dragon, the Kung Fu fighter. Yeah, we have all those things that are starting to make their rise. So when we look at the overlap between those, there is an area that says this comic should do well. Now the problem is they should have had the creator of Karate Kid writing this series, but instead he went to go do something else at another company.
2: Well, you know. I I feel like part of the problem is the insistence on setting this 30th century character in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Because there's never really, I mean, they're starting to build, and it feels like they're starting to reverse engineer a justification for why it's happening with the Voxiv stuff that we're starting to see. But it also feels kind of unmotivated. And I don't know, I mean, nothing about this issue particularly stands out as remarkable even, you know, the points where you're like, ooh, there's a Legionnaire, and now mm-hmm. he's going to go back to the future. It's just kind of like, well, that was a comic that happened. It was. A, mm-hmm.
1: Is this the last issue of Karate Kid?
2: No, Karate Kid goes 15 issues. Okay. I think we're going to cover at least two more uh, before it gets canceled, but I don't think we're going to cover the last issue. Okay. And interestingly, um, usually... You know, we will make the joke about how no one
1: ever heard of Pulsar (laughs) again. We never hear from Pulsar again, ever.
2: We actually do hear from Pulsar again. About six years after this issue comes out, an issue of Batman, the Brave and the Bold wraps up all the plot lines from this series, including killing Pulsar for literally
1: no reason. Nice. All right, Matthew, here is a slang terms of the 70s quiz for you. All Some right. of these will be pretty easy. Some of them may be a little bit more difficult. This is on a website called the 70scom In the 70s. So the word that I'm looking at here is skinny. Now, you can ask me to give it, use it in a sentence, or um, but I need the definition of skinny. In
2: a 70s slang context? Yes. Ugh, can you use it in a sentence?
1: Let me give you the skinny on the deal.
2: Oh, the truth.
1: Okay. Uh, can you dig it?
2: Are you fully recognizing the reality of this situation? Do you understand it? Are you feeling it? Psych. Uh, like to mess with someone's head, to psych them out?
1: Yes, to trick someone. Okay. Uh, don't be such a spaz, where spaz, I think, is the, the key word here.
2: I believe spaz is an ableist and pejorative term.
1: Uh, an ableist, no.
2: No, no, they're not uh, making uh, fun uh, of people with like eye disorders or something.
1: No, 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 they're making fun a, of people who a, are accident a, or a prone, nerd, accident prone, klutzy, or just stupid. Okay, far out.
2: Far out. Something that's far out is good in a really, really awesome way. Yeah, it's
1: so like, we would say that it was cool. What is yes. lay a gasser?
2: I'm sorry, what
1: lay a gasser?
2: Uh, I'm going to say break wind.
1: Yes. Uh, let's see. Your mama.
2: That is uh, an attack phrase. Okay. Where someone says, you're an idiot, and I'm like, your mama.
1: Book or booking?
2: Um to put someone in jail? No. To get a date with someone?
1: To run quickly. Oh. We gotta book oh, it. Oh,
2: so we're gonna book it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Catch you on the flip side.
2: I will see you later, friend.
1: <laughs> uh, let's see.
2: <laughs> I'm going to translate that into Midwestern for you.
1: Feel the funk.
2: Enjoy this music.
1: Yep. Uh, keep on trucking.
2: Do the things that you must do and enjoy your life.
1: Right on.
2: That is correct, sir.
1: Uh, Faux show. Sure. The, the also for... correct, sir. Yes. Uh, for sure or for real uh let's see what else do we have here some of these i'm like are these really 70s terms they must be late 70s like, Hard to say they had grody to the max on here which to me is an 80s term not a 70s term
2: well the valley girl culture actually does start around uh 77
1: 78 the so the term bitchin it. which is awesome or very cool i would say is like a 50s or 60s slang but what about Bogart? I, I
2: remember it with the Valley Girl stuff.
1: What about Bogart?
2: Uh to take. Don't Bogart that <coughs> soda.
1: Yeah. Brick House. <laughs> there is a whole song about someone who has built like a brick house.
2: Yes. She's mighty mighty and letting it all hang out.
1: Yes. Uh burn. Uh
2: that means that you've just failed.
1: Burn! Yeah. Uh don't be a bunny.
2: Mm, I got nothing on that one.
1: Don't be stupid. Oh, well, that makes sense. Dude, which I I use a lot.
2: Yeah, I do too. Dude is a general term of uh, address.
1: Yeah, a guy or a girl.
2: Hey, dudes.
1: Hey, dude. Uh, (laughs) Dino-mite.
2: Might. is uh, an exclamation popularized by Jimmy J.J. Walker in the character of James Evans Jr.
1: And what does it mean?
2: Uh, it means, hey, this is awesome.
1: Let's see. Uh, let's find another one. Freak out.
2: Le chic, c'est freak. Uh, freak out is to uh, lose control or, f- like, I would say flip out,
1: probably. Yeah, when you're doing psychedelic drugs, you have a freak out.
2: Yeah, like in the middle of Willy Wonka.
1: Funkadelic.
2: Funkadelic? That's George Clinton's band.
1: Mm hmm. What does it mean, though, for slang?
2: Um, I'm going to go with a combination of funky and psychedelic. Cool. I have the awesome.
1: Uh, let's see, boy, there's a whole list here. Let's jump down here into the peas.
0: <laughs>
1: um, maybe not. Oh, well, there's pig, of course. Television, what is pig? Pig? Yeah. A police officer? Yes. Uh, peep.
2: Uh, that's a, a terrible sugary treat available no, no, around no. Easter.
1: No, 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 no.
2: To look at or see.
1: There you go. Uh, Matthew, I think you probably would have done okay in the seventies.
2: Well, I was born in the seventies.
1: Uh, let's And
2: see. I watched a lot of good times.
1: There you go. <laughs> yep. So there you go. You can go over to the, uh, in the seventies website and they've got a whole bunch of slang nice. going on right there. Overall, though, I would kind of agree with you, Matthew. This issue, not the best.
2: Yeah, very condescending Karate Kid, kind of a, a, an anticlimactic reveal of one of the big mystery moments. A giant microwave filled with steel. It's just.
0: If you enjoy the show, we would appreciate your support. You can find out more and become a Legion Clubhouse member at patreon.com slash major spoilers.
1: So there's an interesting bit of information that I noticed while I was reading this particular comic. Now, I haven't done a lot of research. It was very apparent, though, in this particular issue. And that is the huge number of ads that were in this issue. And I went back and counted. Uh, This issue has 16 pages of ads. 13 Mm -hmm. if you don't count the inside front and back covers and the back cover of the ad. So, you know, take the inside front, inside back and the back cover, remove those. You end up with 13 uh, pages of ads for a total of 17 pages of story. So -hmm. if you look at 16 versus 17, that's roughly 50-50 in terms of ads versus story. Now, I know a lot of people might be saying, man, that is a lot. But you have to remember when you're watching uh, television shows, 30-minute sitcoms these days, Used to be they would run right around 27 minutes. Now they're back down to 24 minutes. And I think right, right around now they're between 21 and 24 minutes for mm-hmm. a 30-minute show. So that means like almost a third of that time that you're watching television, if you're on cable or however you're watching your television, commercial television, a third of that is going to be ads. 50-50, though, does seem like a lot unless you take into account that this issue is still only Thirty-five cents, and that's something that a lot of people, again, I don't think realize that part of the reason why these prices were be able, were able to be kept so low uh-huh. is because of the ads. The ads are paying for the cost of the comic, and sometime in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, as they made the switch from you know newspaper print to the slick and glossy paper that we have today, the number uh-huh. of ads inside the comic went down, which meant that If the publisher wanted that slick, glossy paper, they would have to eat that cost themselves or, as what happens with most businesses, they pass that cost to the customer and we start to see the price of a comic rise. Now, I don't mind ads. 50-50 did seem a little much in this particular issue. uh, But, you know, if you've got a fourth of a quarter of your comic book is ads and they're good ads, I'm not talking about just the got milk ads that usually run in these these magazines. Right, uh, but you could probably knock off a buck, buck fifty-two dollars on the cover of today's comics, and get some of those comics back down to a buck fifty an issue or two ninety-nine an issue. And but I think you that have would,
2: to ask yourself, who's yeah. going to advertise in
1: comics? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of so. First of all, merchandising. So there could be house ads, which uh, can also cover the cost. So you could advertise other uh, comic book properties. Or you could advertise merchandise, which comes out of another branch of the company's budget. Uh Video games and toys, I think, would still be big things that you could advertise in uh, comics today. Now, maybe not the, you know, the X-ray specs and the learn karate and don't get beat up on the beach kind of ads. But Uh I think, you know, the Got Milk ads, the video game ads, the other things could be a way of bringing some of those costs down if they were willing to increase uh, the, the, um the ad count in a comic book.
2: See, I don't know. I think part of the reason that ads have disappeared from comics is not just a question of, we don't want to put ads in our comics and break up the stories because you'll still see actual advertisements in some books. You'll see a lot of house ads. You'll see a lot of, you know, uh, public service announcements. I know DC has recently been uh, putting a public service announcement about social distancing in every issue. But I think part of it comes down to a question of the revenue sources and streams that we saw in the 70s just aren't there anymore.
1: I I don't know if you
2: could get the people who... I I really think they are.
1: If you go and look at, like, Mademoiselle, go look at Vanity Fair, go pick up one of the girl magazines that your daughter reads, if she reads girl magazines, and you're going to find that those, there's actually more ads than content in those things. And they but are for, they
2: making money?
1: I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that they probably are, or else they wouldn't uh they wouldn't do it as much anymore. Now, the flip side could be said that you could look at newspapers, and newspaper advertising has dropped dramatically over the last 20 years because of internet ads and, and how the internet has killed local papers, and you could say, well, that wouldn't work in comic books, but I have a feeling it might. The problem would be that the comic book publishers is probably expecting Oh, you want to advertise in Batman? Well, that'll be a $10,000 cost uh, if you want to advertise in our Batman comic. And maybe that's true. I know that I spent less than $500 a few years ago to be in a full-page ad on the inside back cover of a comic. No, on the back cover of a comic book for major spoilers. So... And for as much as that was circulated and the number of people that saw that, that was totally worth it to do less than $500 for that full page ad. Do so I think mm. that it could be
2: there. I don't know. I mean, if you look at it, you're, you're looking at an audience of, at a, at a maximum, 200, 250,000 people. Maybe. Oh, it doesn't seem like the best way to spend your money.
1: I bet if you were to ask the comic book reader, hey, would you mind 25 percent of your comic book being ads if it meant the price of the comic dropped by two bucks? And I would bet they would say, hey, no problem. And then when you've got a popular property like Batman or a Superman or a Wolverine or an X-Man, then you could say, hey, um, you know, we're selling 200,000 copies of this advertising here. I mean, we have less than 200,000 people listening to our podcasts each week and we get advertisers.
2: Yeah, but we don't get got milk.
1: Uh, we could have if got milk was still a thing. And also, <laughs> I, I have a, there's a line that I will draw when it comes to ads that we run on our podcasts. Uh, we could be we could be swimming. You, dear listener, could be swimming in ads right now if you wanted to hear about penis pills and uh, hangover drugs and the benefits of CBD oil and all of that stuff. You'd be swimming in ads right now.
2: But, but, you know, that purple mattress that I bought, Steven.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, we would definitely have a lot of that stuff, too. But I'm just like, you know, I'm not doing we're not doing some of those predatory things. We're not selling supplements like some people do on their podcasts. And those people that sell the supplement ads that sell the herbal teas and the CBDs and the and the, the blue pill kind of stuff, they make a lot of bank with that. So much so that, you know, they get bought up by companies like Spotify. So I think that I think advertising can still work in comic books. And I would be totally for it if they were used to bring the cost down and not just add an additional revenue stream to the comic book.
0: Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 231. A day in the death of a world. Published September 1977. Written by Paul Levitz with art by James Sherman. Synopsis. Karate Kid returns from the past. Just in time for a son to go Nova.
1: What's going on in uh, Superboy and the Legion of uh, Superheroes 231? I forgot, uh, this came out in June of 77. That is correct. I am now age six and a half at this point.
2: Uh, So am I. But... I'll tell you the thing that happens in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 231, that is monumental, meaningful, and holy moly. It's a harbinger of things to come, Stephen.
1: Harbinger, you say?
2: A harbinger. Not that harbinger. Oh, then I don't care. Different, it's a different harbinger. It's also not that holly hunter. No, this is only the second time since 1958 that the words Legion of Superheroes have appeared in the official indicia title of a comic book. Because even though this book has been Superboy featuring the Legion and Superboy and the Legion on the cover, this comic has, until issue 231, still been officially, for DC's mailing and legal purposes, Superboy.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
2: And even though there was that four issue Legion miniseries that we didn't cover back in 73, I think we talked about skipping it. That was just the reprints of the Legion's origins. Mm-hmm. That was the first book to ever have Legion of superheroes in the title. This is the point where the Legion officially co-ops part of Superboy's book and will eventually spoilers co-opt the entirety of Superboy's book and throw Superboy out of the comic that was his since 1949.
1: Mm, Interesting. So in this issue, though, we Mm -hmm. see the Fatal Five return. The Fatal Five. And they're going to blow up an entire planet.
2: They are. They're holding a planet hostage until they get what they want.
1: This is like a super, super, super evil plan because the whole plot behind this is... They're not going to stop this this sun from going supernova no matter what. They're going to right. set off a... Uh, who is it? Uh, uh, Thayrock Johnson mm-hmm. wants to set off a nuclear explosion in the sun to make it go supernova. All the people, the Mordenites, the morden Linians or whatever that they're called, <laughs> over a million of them, in this explosion, they will be turned into energite, which is money. So they're going yep. to blow up an entire planet potentially kill millions of people not because they're blackmailing anyone for money because they want these people to be turned into a commodity that can make them ultra rich and that honestly is the most evil plan i have ever heard of forget about Uh, eradicating you know people just because you don't like them this is effing evil
2: It is truly heinous. And the really, really obnoxious part of it all is the fact that as the issue starts, not only are they holding the whole planet hostage, they've stolen a couple of Legionnaires to try and use that as leverage to keep Uh the Legion from getting involved.
1: Who, Who could that be?
2: Who could that be? Well, I'll give you a hint. The first half of this episode was one of their books Featuring the other one of them.
1: Well, actually, the previous issue we just covered featured both of them, Princess Projectra and Karate Kid, and she can't keep her hands off of him as he glides through space, which is probably why the ship is going uh, weaving in and out through traffic, uh, because Mm -hmm. she's just all over him in this in this first panel that we see them together.
2: Yep. They have returned to the future. As we will see in the next issue of Karate Kid, but this has to fall in between issue 9 and issue 10, chronologically speaking, for the story to make any sense. Mm-hmm. So, Karate Kid, Princess Projector, who, by the way, looks really, really, really good under the pencils of uh, James Sherman. And I'm not saying like, oh, she's half naked or anything. Just a beautiful, beautiful girl. She looks kind of like no, Ginger. No, we know what you meant. From, you know, Gilligan's Island. Yeah. But... Yeah, she and Karate Kid are taken. Uh, Colossal Boy has his sleeves back, so nobody knows who he is.
1: There's another interesting thing that happens in here that I was, that kind of surprised me when I first read it, Mm -hmm. is when they are abducted, there is a giant ship, like a big mile-long ship, Mm -hmm. that is tractor-beaming them into the undercarriage of the giant ship. And the only thing I could think of is, wow, they've stopped borrowing from Star Trek and they're going full-on Star Wars in this issue. Now, Star Wars came out May 25th, 1977. I'm sure there were trailers and stuff that were out there. I'm pretty sure the first trailer included that opening shot from Star Wars where the um, the runner is trying to escape the Imperial cruiser, and I can't help but wonder if this didn't inspire that art. Now, again, the, it's a month apart, so you're not actually having this comic being put into production after the release of Star Wars, right. but... Trailers are out a couple of months before that, so I could definitely see some inspiration being drawn into this comic.
2: Yep. I mean, this book was on the streets in July of 77, so approximately 30 to 45 days ahead of time, it's definitely
1: possible. Yeah. So everybody's captured, the Leech members. They don't know that the um, planet is essentially being held hostage or what's going on, so they are helping on the planet, uh, everyone into their Jupiter-2s. So that they can escape off world and go to a new location. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, uh, even Superboy and uh, the rest, Monel and the rest, are trying to craft new uh, rescue arcs, I guess is what they're called. And mm-hmm. then we discover the evil plan and how the Fatal Five are involved in all of these. And man, again, all I can say is this is evil, evil, evil from the top down. Every single yeah. one of them every single one member of the Fatal Five are on board for this plan because it knows that they are going to have such incredible wealth that it will allow them to do anything.
2: And Levitz is really starting to fire on more cylinders because there's a lot of Legionnaires in this issue. Mm -hmm. And they're, I mean, they're splitting up in ways that make sense. Brainiac Five and Element Lad are trying to figure out how to analyze the sun and keep the reaction from blowing up. Which makes perfect sense. You got the brain guy and the guy who can literally turn elements into other things. You've got Superboy doing some heavy lifting. You've got, you know, your Saturn girl and Shadow Last trying to evacuate people. Mm-hmm. Colossal Boy is on hand to punch out Validus, who by the way looks huge. Validus is enormous in this issue. Yeah. I, I could have sworn Validus was like 15 feet tall, but in here he's easily 60.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, Colossal Boy is able to match his size, maybe not his strength, Mm -hmm. but definitely matches his size. Also, the art when um, when Element Lad and uh, Brainiac are in space, Mm -hmm. Element Lad is totally hippie dude Mm -hmm. and Brainiac 5 is totally Grandpa Grandpa Jones (laughs) uh, in this, Uh, which is interesting because when I look at this particular page where mm -hmm. they're fighting the Emerald Empress in space. I can totally start to see some of the cartoony stylings that the Moys would use later in their run of the Legion, uh, with the with the new volume of the Legion when it gets launched in the uh, in the eighties and nine or early nineties. Yeah, and
2: that is another thing that Sherman. Who does the first half of this issue does really well. His his Emerald Empress is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, she's doing the evil Empress laugh, and, mm-hmm. she's, ah, ha, 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 and it's just—I mean, you can see that this woman wants to kill them. You, you can she see where wants to murder Sunboy. She wants to murder Element Lad.
1: Yes, and if you can uh, see where the Moys get their inspiration in this page, you also see where Greg Land gets his inspiration in this page.
2: You, yeah, yeah, that's something
1: different. It, it totally looks like a trace.
2: It it could be, or you know, a, definitely a photo reference. But it is really, really strong. Looks a little like Karen Carpenter.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, even and, when um, uh, what's his name with the axe? Uh, but battle persuader. axe. The persuader. Your persuader when he takes off his helmet, man, it totally looks like first gen Iron Man and Tony Stark underneath.
2: <laughs> it could be. I mean, they are facial hair bros. Yeah. And armor bros as well.
1: You know, while uh, Shadow Lass and Saturn Girl are off rescuing uh, children who have been left behind and abandoned, which again, holy crap, you put that into a comic is just like the parents cared more about themselves than their kids as they tried to desperately flee. That undertone, even if it's just in two panels, is super disturbing. But maybe at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, maybe if Saturn Girl wasn't paying so much attention to these kids and more attention to her own son. Validus wouldn't be so angry and punchy in this issue.
2: <sighs> she doesn't know that yet. We're still a good seven years from that revelation.
1: I'm just saying.
2: I am too. i maybe,
1: maybe with her psychic connection, she would go, there's some familiar connection that I have with this Validus character. Why, each time is he around, do I have this sudden urge to mother him and comfort him? <laughs>
2: And aside from that, even the power of Superboy, yeah, Superboy, who is young Superman, is insufficient to take down the Fatal Five, leading to a cliffhanger, which, interestingly, would have been the end of issue 231 were it not for
1: something else important that happens in this issue. What's the other thing that happens in this issue?
2: This issue is the point where, as per a lot of books in the mid-70s from D.C., Legion went to giant size. Mm -hmm. So this is a 60-cent comic, which essentially contains what was prepared as 231 and 232, which is why at the end of 231, you see that last page with Validus attacking Superboy. Or actually you see the last page and then you see Validus attacking Superboy. Mm-hmm. That's where Michael Netzer takes over.
1: Oh yeah. Sherman did two. the first
2: issue, Netzer yeah. did the second. So both of these chapters were essentially prepared, according to the uh lot jobs from DC, as issue two thirty one and two thirty two. So the decision to go giant size was made after the books were already commissioned.
1: And even though it does seem like the Fatal Five are going to be able to take down everyone, um uh, Legion Don't give up. Uh, Karate Kid does his Karate Kid action. Projector does her thing. You've got, uh, you know, Superboy and Mon-El, Kraken and Thacken and Thumping and Kazapping.
2: Yep. You see the beginnings of the Ultra Boy-Mon-El friendship uh, that becomes one of the cornerstones of Levitz's later Legion work. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've always been friendly, but in this issue, you keep seeing them hanging out together, and you kind of think that these two guys probably go out and have wings. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 hang out socially.
1: And I really like that. So even though they are able to get everyone off the planet, there's no way they're stopping the star from going supernova. And uh, they're able to escape in their Star Trek ship uh, as it's exploding. And then we have this weird panel where Superman's wearing his cape like some weird robe thing, like he's some messiah (laughs) giving some lesson that we must all learn is a really weird panel. And I'm not sure I understand why He's drawn that way as opposed to his cape flapping majestically in, you know, a artificial environment. (laughs) I mean, maybe he's cold from being out in space and he's wrapping himself. I I really don't understand why he's drawn that way. We usually do not see his cape worn like a cloak.
2: I think it's kind of neat, honestly. I I don't know what the, the artistic impetus behind it was, but it's a moment where you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, Yeah. I mean. There seems to be a lot more cape there than usual. You are correct. I wonder if he overstretched it. Maybe. In his super stretchy cape stretching.
1: I don't know. It's just it's just really weird.
2: Yeah. But, you know, it's also a neat moment to allow him to give the sum up and explain how, if it weren't for these meddling kids, Therok would have gotten away with it all. Mm-hmm which is kind of neat. They use Sunboy's power and Shadow Lass's power to fake an explosion, yep. to fake a a sun going supernova yep. and to fake out the Fatal 5 and send them to jail.
1: Well, do sort they? Of. Because I thought that they didn't they escape.
2: Okay, send them to escape. Yeah, they do get away. And well, they always the, get away. Yeah, the Fatal
1: 5, I mean, and I'm glad that this is a double-sized issue because when the Fatal 5 are around, You know you are in for interesting times. And this is a perfect story for that, where you have the giant fake-out. You have the that's-no-moon kind of a moment. You have, you know, this wicked, vile plot to eradicate people just to make money off of them, uh, Mm. which is just, oh my gosh, it's, this is probably the most evil, there's one exception, this is probably the second most evil plan I've ever seen in a DC comic.
2: What's the most evil plan? The
1: first most evil plan is in 52, where Lex Luthor gives people superpowers. And And lets
2: them all die?
1: And then when, at the height of when he's about to be caught, people are flying through the air, they're using their powers and everything, and he simply flips a switch and turns their powers off, and they plummet from the sky and die. That is the most wicked because here he gives he's given people hope and people are like well that Lex isn't as bad as he as as everyone says he is let me go and use my superpowers up up and away and then they plummet to their death so he, he instantly takes away hope that is the most wicked this one here is it just looks like it's going to be a supernova and we've got to evacuate the planet but then you realize oh no this is where we're going to turn these people into Energenite or whatever it is and they're worth a lot of money that way, and then you're going, "Oh man, that is that is wicked and cruel." So, yeah. and then the third most wicked thing in DC comics are the evil parents who left their children behind as the the planet and the system is about to blow up. Uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> you know that time that the Anti Monitor destroyed literally billions of people in multiple universes.
1: Yeah, but that's I can that's where he's... not even
2: a top five. No, it's
1: I mean... it really isn't. I mean, it's it's just. You know, it's, a, it's wicked, but I would not say that that is the most evil.
2: Uh, Does it feel to you like this story is missing something near the end? Because I've read it a couple, three times now, and I just I feel like I miss a page somewhere along the line or it, maybe something wasn't clarified for me. Because honestly, when you said, didn't the Fatal Five get away? I'm like, did they?
1: Well, and the only reason why you make that assumption is because superboy is like, hey, they were they will now have to learn what it means and they're going to pay this terrible price. And right. so it kind of gives this uh setup kind of like we saw previously of, oh, they killed our friend. Oh, just you wait. We're now going on the rampage. Uh so that's why it kind of feels that way. But I don't I don't know if this feels like it's missing something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh I can I, like most really great storytellers, oftentimes their endings are super, super weak. Stephen King is a perfect example of this. Able to weave such a wonderful story, get you drawn in, tell you about all these things that are going on, and then he craps on the ending every single time. And I think Paul Levitz is a very talented writer, but maybe he's just, I wanted to tell more, but this is only this many pages long, so I have to take out a page or a panel or, you know, three other things that would make this feel more well-rounded just because of of space considerations. Could be. Yeah. So what'd you think of this one? I enjoyed this issue.
2: I feel like this is a really solid one. There are a lot of moments in here where I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's neat. Brainiac makes an educated guess. Mm -hmm. That is one of those moments where you're just like, wow, that kind of underlines how ridiculously dangerous and out of their element. This whole situation is, But it works out for the end. You know, I really appreciate the fact that we have 11 Legionnaires in play. Nobody feels like they get really short
1: shrifted. Well, except for, you know, the others that didn't get to appear in this issue.
2: Well, there's 24 Legionnaires right now. Getting 11 in is remarkable. Getting 11 in and having everybody seem like they're doing something that Mm -hmm. means something. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. That is really kind of awesome.
1: Yeah. And that wraps up this installment of the Legion Clubhouse. Thank you so much for everyone checking out this show consistently week after week. And uh, we would like to keep doing this far into the future. So if you would, just take a moment, go check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash major spoilers. And maybe you can help us out right now. If you can, that would be great uh, because we use all of your Patreon money and it goes right back into everything that we do. So that's something that you, our dear listener, has learned this week. Matthew, what did we learn this week?
2: We learned that at this point in the story, they don't know where Dawnstar is from, so they just identify her as from Earth.
1: We also learned that the Fatal Five are just evil, pure and simple from the eighth dimension.
2: And we learned that somehow in the 70s, Karate Kid learned about whittling, probably from
1: Jed Clampett. Thank you so much for checking us out this week. We will be back again in the future. So until next time, I'm Can You Dig It, Man?
2: And I'm Jive Turkey Kid.
0: The Legion Clubhouse is a production of Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC, and is produced by Steven Schleicher. Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Stephen Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Stephen at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa.
1: This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.